Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falconsline from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. As well as Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. In the house! It is wonderful to be back with you lovely people in Sydney. That was Hans Zimmer's amazing, amazing score from The Thin Red Line. Yes. Welcome back, Glenn. Uh, it's lovely to have you back with us again. Some harsh words were said about Glenn last week, but right now I will officiate over the offic- the apology. Yeah, well, there is what, no apology. What, your, your mic. Not? I, I, sh- I should listen to this. Probably. Ooh, this sounds quite controversial. No, um, I mean, uh, welcome back, Glenn. It's uh, we missed you. That's what you, I meant. Yeah. I, I missed you too, Vera. Our, our beloved captain, <laughs> never to be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed wonderful to be back, and it has been a big week of films because I got to see something. I mean, and all Christopher Nolan fanboys all around the world have been very excited for. for God months. help us all. Oh yes, and that is Dunkirk, his first film based on real live events, set in. Well, there was also The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> ah, true. That is my favourite documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It really rose in my estimation. It did. And this is set in northern France during the Second World War. It is about one of the biggest military evacuations ever to take place. Now, there's a lot you can say about this film and what it is, but I would rather say what it isn't. This is not a film that's two or three hours long. It comes in just over 100 minutes. It is short. It is for night. It is to the point. It is not so much a war film as it is a suspense drama, something Christopher Nolan knows and has done so well. You do not see the backstories from any number of people. You do not see world leaders like Churchill sitting in their bunkers and making famous, famous speeches. You are with the people on the beach. It's very immediate. It is. You are there, and the circumstance of what happens, you are as helpless and out of control as they are. And while it, I think I really enjoyed it, I think I could best describe it as a masterpiece if an imperfect masterpiece. That's right, Clan. It is. Your description is very apt. It is an imperfect, perfect film, I suppose. Cold perfection. Yeah, I mean, it's a Nolan film after all. And somebody described it as an extended final act of a horror film. And I think that description is very apt. Though I think at some points it is the most... Nolan films of all Nolan films. In that it's it's obsessed with the structure and the technicalities of its construction. Uh, Nolan has been going more and more in this direction. I think Inception but, in some ways is a predecessor to the way that this film is put together. But it's, it's quite unusual for a war film. Definitely way better than Inception, which is, you know, yes. <laughs> a very good thing. But... Uh, and one of the things I wanted to point out was music. The use of music is perhaps its best point and also its worst. In the best moments, especially the opening sequences, when the music comes in, it really does have an impact in accentuating and highlighting the emotional moments. But then by the middle and towards the end, it becomes such a deafening crescendo of everything and it's such a Hans Zimmer it, kind of bombastic ballistic thing where you it, as an audience you can't breathe but yeah because it's it's layered over every scene instead of just using this at the peak points in in the narrative where this could heighten the emotion we're hearing the same kind of constant thudding horror movie music over every scene so while it starts out as something that it sh- shakes you rattles you which i think is what Nolan and Zimmer are going for by the end, it becomes almost monotonous. Yes. I think after Interstellar, it's one of my all-time favorite film scores. It was absolutely worth downloading and just listening to, particularly the scene where Matt Damon and uh, McConaughey are approaching the space Yeah, ship. that was fantastic. It was fantastic. Yeah. But this, he thought, wow, we have an amazing... Uh, 
Person composer. here, composer, let's bring him in. But it kind of went overboard at times. And some of the best bits were earlier on when you didn't actually yeah, hear that much music. when there was silence. And there's there's moments later on in the film where silence would be really appropriate. But I think Nolan is committed to his constructs. And one of those constructs is we start hearing a ticking clock on the soundtrack and then the score never lets up. But if he had been less obsessive about maintaining the rules of the film, you know, then we could have allowed some more silences to play out as they did so effectively in the earlier in the movie. I, I think, yeah, I, I mean, he I cuts see, himself off. I can see what Nolan is trying to do. He's trying to sort of do a comparative analysis on what the soldiers might have gone through at that point about being constantly shell-shocked and trying to shell-shock the audience with that incessant score. And it builds to an amazing crescendo, but there are some scenes where it's used really well. The opening sequence where just random soldiers running from the German infantry coming towards them onto the beach. And my favorite scene in the film, something in terms of imagery I have not seen equaled in a number of a number of years, I think. There's a sequence where um, a soldier is lying on a beach and he just... And there's a bombard- aerial bombardment just slowly coming towards him, and it just slowly creeps up, creeps up. And um, there are some sequences, the spit fires over the ocean. Oh, I couldn't believe what I was watching. There are some fantastically staged action sequences, but as a whole, for me, it wasn't enough. I don't think Christopher Nolan has ever been that talented an action filmmaker, which he's been able to get away with because until now, most of his action films have been built around exposition. He's now made a very in-the-moment, almost entirely action-driven film, and I think his failures at staging the action really come out here. And I feel like perhaps the... The reason he's layered so much music over this is that he feels that he hasn't been able to organically build suspense or energy in his action direction and has tried to artificially inject that into the film through the score. But at the same time, I mean, uh, let's appreciate the spectacle of that 70mm scope that the film brings in. You know, the actual aerial scenes and the shots are fantastic. The choreography of the fighter jets and the Tom Hardy, which is, I think, the best arc in the entire film, was some of the most spectacular camera work that's been done on film. So just for the pure spectacle of it, I think it's a beautiful film to watch. They are, and those character arcs, I think we should probably explain at this point, there were several in the film. There were three major sequences, uh, one which went over the course of a week, one over the course of an hour, one over the course of the day, which transfix and which uh, together conflate towards the end of the film. Right, and Nolan announces this actually at the start with titles on screen that say, you know, land one week, or the mole as it was called, and air one hour, sea one day. Yeah, it was a little disconcerting when suddenly it was night, but aside from that, you know, the yeah. ending was worth it when ba- you had the Spitfire ba- flying over the ocean. Basically, the way it works is that you, um, because these three narratives that all end up linking in at the end take place over a different per- periods of time but are cut between each other, you might see an event that in one of the three strands of the narrative that takes place chronologically earlier than the, a scene you've you've seen earlier in the film so you've got a bit of non-linear time working on but i question what the point of this was because it was most effective and the only point where i think it really worked is at the climax and intercutting between things that aren't literally taking place at the same time is something that all sorts of action movies do whereas i think the the constant intercutting earlier on in the movie just cuts off the drama whenever it has a chance to develop but i think that's once again that's the probably the stronger or the weakest point of nolan he thinks of himself as a pseudo-intellectual filmmaker who's appealing to the masses. So the kind of 
this conceit which works for some people is like, oh my God, look at this. It's so clever. It's right out of Nolan's wheelhouse. You know, it's kind of that sort of thing which works. But he's a, he's a deeply intellectual filmmaker. Some of those fa- films, Memento, I'm not the biggest fan of Prestige, but it is an outstanding film. The Dark Knight trilogy, obviously. The Prestige is my sports. favorite Nolan film. Uh, I think the Christopher Nolan fight and his best film is definitely in another, that could be a whole episode. Yeah. But uh, the this yeah. one, you know, he decided to go for a visceral, visceral gut reaction. You are the soldiers on the beach for the duration of this film, and it is... Yeah. I, to a degree, but I don't think he pulls off the level of empathy or connection with what the soldiers are feeling for that to completely work, because, again, we keep shifting away from them. So the movie's less about what the individual soldiers are going through as it is about the technicality of watching the operation to run the evacuation come together. But uh, I think this this ends up holding us at too much of a remove and making the film colder than it should have been. I, I think that coldness does work in the sense that we never see the enemy. I mean, this opening shot in that, you know, he sees the map and there's this image of you're surrounded with arrows. And that was beautiful because you get that feeling of being in a claustrophobic environment without ever realizing who the enemy is. We never see, you know, the Germans or, you know, that kind of Axis powers ever at play, but you constantly feel their presence. And that's why it works as a horror film. It is the final act of a horror film where you are brought in, you are thrust into it. And it's a survival film. It's, it's a survival film. And yeah. a lot of, and that's the one thing the one thing I did not go crazy about was and you talked about the map, was the kind of Brenner section where we we've spoken about Nolan, his films, how he deals with exposition, how he sets a story. Um, he needed Branagh's character in this to do that, and it was a little frustrating at times. Whereas um, the Mark Rylance role and Harry Styles, in particular, who it has to be said, was not bad in this movie. He was good. I think, look, the problem with the film is that it had a great cast, but the cast had nothing to do. The cast is not the main point or the main hero of the film. The main hero of the film. It's, it's the 70 millimeter camera. And it's, no, no, it's the Christopher Nolan. It's film. It's, Kodak film is the hero of Dunkirk. <laughs> 70 millimeter is the hero. Yes. Uh, this has been promoted. I mean, it's the same with Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Harry Styles, surprisingly, One Direction fame is not the biggest thing about this film. It's Nolan's name that is above the fold in headlines. In, yep. in some sense, it's a winful auteur theory. If you're a fan of your directors and directors actually owning the medium, this is kind of your film. But in some sense, it's also a very detached film. You can't feel for anybody because the winner or the hero is the camera. So if you love the cinematography... Yeah, and the the editing. Yes. So it's actually that aesthetic experience, which actually I've been defending on this show for weeks. And now I'm sort of cold about it, so I don't know. Yeah, uh, personally, though there are some stirring sequences toward the end... I didn't feel anything when the rescue boats finally arrived in Dunkirk. Not yeah. a spoiler. Uh, I mean, uh, we yeah. all know what this is about. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Um, wait, wait, they were rescued? Yeah. Come so, on, Chris. So I didn't know. I, I did my historical... When I yeah. step away from the film, I admire the concept of building a war film unconventionally. But I think in terms of what it says about war and what it ultimately adds up to, it is still quite a conventional war film. No, because let's let's be honest, any for any war film to work, you have to emphasize with the characters. Because it is... You know, they are who being rescued, and we didn't get any of that. We didn't care. It's about, about an abstract hell where unidentified enemies are picking off this, men who with interchangeable faces and names. But this is what's so interesting about Dunkirk. You have like the D-Day landings of San Francisco in a number of historic military events which are portrayed incessantly in film. Dunkirk is not because it is an evacuation. Sixty-eight thousand British troops died. There are any number of other tens of thousands of troops additionally who passed away. And this is not if something you necessarily want to celebrate, or which is not what Nolan's doing. But Nolan is the side. 
title. I want to make this event. I want to talk about the spirit of this event. And he could have gone in and not even had the title as Dunkirk. He could have given no context until Churchill's speech at the end, the famous, famous, we will fight them on the beaches, which is come, which comes. And which is rendered in a fascinating way. Which yes, actually, absolutely yeah, favorite things yeah. in the film. So, and I feel that people would watch this film, whether students or otherwise, and would say, wow, this is fascinating. I want to know more about this, especially given the lack of context given and just how frightening and upfront it all is. But, but, but let's not confuse it with historical accuracy because the only reference to Britishness and otherness, even though British, French and, you know, the Allied forces fought together, this is still a very British perspective, which I thought was a bit alienating for me because I wanted to see other perspective and that dichotomy. And it plays out a little bit, that tension between French and British forces, but not enough. Yeah, I just want to say there's a lot of negligent comparisons that I feel that have been drawn between this and Brexit politically. People also try to, in America, are trying to... Uh, talk, say that this movie is about Trump's America or something. So it is the season for ridiculous okay. political overreadings. I, I, of- I think we need an intervention. We need to call out, please do not over-intellectualize Nolan. Everyone has done it too much. I think ultimately... Despite all of my criticisms of the film, I'd still recommend it to people for the spectacle and also for the ambition of what Nolan has attempted here. And how it's nice to watch also an action film that feels very organic, that's lacking much in the way of digital trickery. And if you do uh, try to catch it, please do try and catch it in 70mm. It is oh, worth yes, it. Oh, yes, definitely. That's worth it. It looks yes. nice. Yes, it um, but, it. yeah, it's a, it's an ambitious and interesting film, but I feel Nolan is, still has limitations that make let the film down. So Dunkirk is out in cinemas now. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back talking about A Monster Calls and a Ghost Story. Bit of a theme here, so we've left you with some very appropriate music. Stay tuned. And spooky, they're all together, ooky, the Adams family. Their house is a museum. When people come to see them, they really are a scream. The Adams family. Neat. And that was the Adams family leading us in on Film Fuck Club. Man, I love that show. <laughs> oh, it's so many memories. But did you love a monster calls. Oh yes, this is the film of the oh. week. This is uh, in <laughs> cinemas now. Oh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow. This is the new film, uh, British production with Felicity Jones and Sigourney Weaver and a number of other performers. It and is- why is Sigourney Weaver in this film? I spent half the movie thinking that she was Susan Sarandon and the other half <laughs> thinking of how much better Susan Sarandon would have been in this role. Yeah, yeah, why would I you make an alien you know, sequel, please? Please yeah. make another one. I think even Sigourney Weaver thinks that by this point. Why am I not Susan Sarandon? <laughs> so, so, so this film, which as not Susan Sarandon, Sigourney Weaver, yeah. uh, is about a young boy whose mother, very sadly played by Felicity Jones, is very sick and how he copes and deals with that. And he is visited one night by a giant tree, an animated tree voiced by Liam Neeson, which appears outside his bedroom window and proceeds to tell him three stories. Okay, look, I'm just going to say it, and you you all are thinking it. This is pretty much the poor cousin of the BFG. This is what this movie is. Crossed right, with Pan's let's, Labyrinth. Let's, let's, Pan's yeah. Labyrinth. It, it had a lot of Pan's Labyrinth going. But, and i got to say, Pan's Labyrinth is one of my all-time favorite films. I love what they did weaving, you know, dealing with tragedy and loss through fiction and mysticism. And this tried to do that, but I feel it was yeah, through a Yeah, this is hub. not it. This it, is not this Pan's, is, Labyrinth. This movie, not Pan's Labyrinth. This movie has no depth to it. 
But yeah. look, Boom. It, I mean, Shot fired. Oh. Yeah. Shots fired. Right, you know, this it makes so many missteps right from the start when the monster appears. It, you know, every and every time he shows up in in the film from then on, it's this crash, rumble, brr, CG, things falling apart, and it's just like, stop. I'm re- so it's such stock imagery at this point. Is that really the best way to visu- to dramatize some? ancient mythological magical all-knowing force it just looks like cg destruction out of any other movie i mean the real monster is in the studio right now because chris has come alive with so much passion <laughs> in describing it this has, monster no, I'm, I'm, look at his arms going everywhere i, I wish this was lo- this was video live but i've got to agree like you know i love Liam neeson i'll watch listen to his voice i'll listen to his voice in yeah. a recipe book but this he just kind of stood there and you know i'm going to read you three stories and then literally the street just i probably just sat there and just read uh, i mean yeah, Liam exactly. neeson has a particular particular set of skills and but uh, voicing this tree was not, not one, one of them <laughs> 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 compare, don't make more taken films please yeah, compare how the monsters in pan's labyrinth evoke dark unknowable magical forces and and so um unconventional in their look and the way they're presented to just how all right he's an ent with with megatron's eyes this <laughs> yes, guy was yes. this is like a really angry ent yeah but, and and you know the tales he was telling you know, the cartoons they were nicely rendered sure like in the harry potter last harry potter film but the tales they were so simplistic they were really simplistic but the those tales uh you know i was wondering about the choice of the visual style because these are meant to be stories belonging to ancient folklore but they're rendered like an indie PlayStation 4 game. You know, which, it looks which is not bad if you like PlayStation, but it's or, bad if you like cinema. Right, right. It looks like a DVD menu, also. It just or, or advertising. It just did not evoke the kind of mood yeah. that I think it was and meant to. For a film which is titled "A Monster Calls," it didn't really have a monster. I mean, it didn't have that impact that this is a monster. It just looked like a cardboard cutout for a tree. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, there's too much in this film. Nothing is really developed. You know, we we find out that he's being bullied, but we never really get to learn about that. And then the plot's over. The we know with the grandmother. Yeah, is not well developed. Not, re- not very developed. The relationship with his dad, who he has split from his mom, it just sort of shows up from time to time throughout the film, not very well developed. Even the central relationship with his dying mom is barely developed. There's way too much in this film for any of it to have you, breathing you room and cut, space to come alive. You could have cut the dad out, Tobias, the guy from Ben-Hur. Exactly, and give the rest... Even And the stories are simplistic because but, they're just crammed into this narrative. None of them have look, given I mean, space. This is, this is the worst kind of teenage angst narrative that is there because, I mean... There's everything that could go wrong with this kid is going wrong. And, you know, kind of after a while you feel like, am I watching like a very, very, you know, distinctive take on boyhood or what? And look, those individual three <laughs> stories, they were great stories. I wanted to see, I want to read now the original folk that they were based on. I just feel they were oversimplified in they the were, yeah. this film. Yeah, yeah that, that's the thing about this film. It is very simplified in a lot of ways. You know, the themes that aren't developed through these rushed interludes are just explained to us at the end of the film by the, the giant end thing. Um, <laughs> the giant but, end thing. That, that's the official moniker yeah. now. So I'm thinking, okay, is this a kid's film because of the way that it lays the themes on the table, makes it easy and- for us to understand? Sure, but but no kid would be interested in this. And I'm all for intelligent kids filmmaking, but this doesn't even feel like it has any sense of magic and wonder that would appeal to kids. It's like a dreary Oscar bait thing for middle-brow parents to drag their kids along to. It's but, not for I actual mean, kids. Just, just look at the kind of uh, filmmaking that are appealing to young adults, which are a lot more intelligent. I mean, something like Pixar's Inside Out. Oh, fanta- on Netflix now. On actually, actually, on Netflix. You know, something like that. So even filmmaking for kids is actually a lot more intelligent, not more nuanced. And this is going back to a time where you might be thinking, is this really where we have come? 
Yeah, know. yeah. It's it's very old fashioned, but it it doesn't have the charm of a lot of the and, throwback. Yeah, films and, it's, being, it's going and through, yeah. even sadder. What is Felicity Jones doing here? Yeah, you because so she's great worth films more than this. She is worth oh, more. One hundred percent. Crazy Rogue One. She's oh, a, yeah, okay. she's a very good actress. Yeah. So look, uh, the monster calls in cinemas tomorrow. Go see Pan's Labyrinth. And, <laughs> um, no, no, it's uh, and uh, <laughs> otherwise the other uh, not dissimilar film in some respects thematically. So uh, is a ghost story, which is actually not about ghosts. So it's I mean, about pie. Also, bedsheets. <laughs> but anyway, bedsheets and pie, which I think we all can enjoy in our bedrooms. Yes. Yes. So, so, so American case, Pie. Case, yes. Speaking of, you know, yes, our film of the week. Yes, there's not a sequel to American Pie. It's still a classic. The classic. Yeah. Uh, so this is Casey Affleck in a micro-budget film where he and Rooney Mara, uh, they... In a, in a house, they're a couple. He passes away, but he comes back to haunt the house as a ghost. And it's the it's his experience living through... It's, As it's, a ghost with Rooney Mara. It's beautiful in the sense... Actually, okay, I was a bit taken aback by the central conceit and gimmick of this film, and I'm like, really? Uh, you know, somebody with a bedsheet on? <laughs> Am I going to be impressed by this? But then when the other guy came up with... Who also had a bedsheet on, that was one of the funniest bits in the I film. I know, it's like two bedsheets. It's a bedsheet face-off. And, you know, <laughs> it was fantastic. But also, I mean, let me hark back to my favourite scene cinematic scene of 2017 which is an extended pie-eating scene. I mean, it's more than five minutes of just Sweeney Mara eating a pie. It's it's fantastic. It's just beautiful. I mean, if I were to say to someone, what is the cinematic takeaway of 2017? I'd be like, Sweeney Mara eating a pie. And I would not even be ironic in saying that. Look, for all the strange bits, including that, and it, it was weird. I mean, just we didn't we thought it would go on and on. It just kept going on and on and on. I just didn't think people would really be into. And apparently, you know, I read it. She had never eaten a pie before that. This was the first time <laughs> she had tasted a pie, <laughs> so she was really she into it. Just eat this pie for. And now, additionally, but then when you get past the pie scene, there is the quite incredible ending to the film where they go through. I don't, I don't necessarily. Yeah, want to ruin please it. don't spoil this I, movie for me. I mean, I haven't seen it yet. It, it, it goes in directions you wouldn't necessarily expect. Something that is confined for the entire length of the film to a small house and a small property goes into quite an amazing place. Actually, uh, yeah, I mean, let, let, we've been joking about this film and being quite, you know, jovial, but actually the ending had a very very definitive emotional impact and it really did work so it's actually a very good film i, I don't think we've conveyed that enough we've yeah. been trying to diss this film but actually yeah. it's a very good I, film you have to credit these guys who you know they're big budget stars and making all these amazing films and they decided to make a small film a low budget film an independent film and it is quite good and it's doing the festival circuit quite well Yes, um, and Rooney Mara, she's the breakout star of 2017 with Song to Song, which Glenn didn't like, but was also oh, a good yes. film. Uh, that, you know, had film. a lot of navel-gazing, as Glenn said. That's the film we enjoyed, yes. <laughs> yes. Malik, fantastic. But also now she's in a ghost story, and she's done some amazing work this so, year. Yes, uh, so we will, there will be many more Rooney Mara films to talk about in the coming weeks. Um, however, we are, we'll be back in a moment talking about Romero, who sadly passed away recently, and our favorite zombie films. Stay tuned. Something evil's lurking in the dark Under the moonlight You see us like that almost touch your heart You try to scream But Tara, take the sound before you make it And you start to freeze As Lauren looks you right between the eyes
and we are back on Film Fight Club. Now, George Romero, uh, the great director, sadly passed away this week. He was someone who's, I think, fairly credited with um, delivering the modern zombie film to audiences that we know and love. Creating and- the iconography of the zombie that everyone is so familiar with now, in, in fact, I would say. Yeah, I mean, he's The Night of the Living Dead, the film that, if you... You, you will have seen it because due to a strange copyright technicality, um, it was never the film was never technically copyrighted. So Public pe- domain. Yeah, so pe- so directors will put this film on in the background. The screams, the famous zombie scenes in this film, you will recognize if you haven't seen the film in its entirety. But the slow-moving zombies uh, that, you know, have since comes a character in a number of films, including The Walking Dead. Yeah, he, he created the contemporary idea of what a zombie is. A lot of money you know, has been made based on, built on this man's ideas. But he deserves credit for even more than that because he was actually a great director with a great imagination. Um, he was incredible at building suspense. He used his horror films to make social commentary, making pointed statements about race and about consumerism, about social division in America. Um, I think he's an incredibly vital filmmaker. And he also showed that he was another a film by him that I really like is Creepshow, which is a almost like a horror comedy with a really interesting visual style. Um, he was a, a very flexible um, and dynamic horror filmmaker with, who contributed a, a lot to the culture, and he'll be very missed. I mean, and he was way ahead of his time, mainly because, I mean, if you look at the horror genre today and what is all is possible within that genre, I think Romero was one of the first to actually incorporate that style and really push the boundaries. And today, I think, when I look at filmmakers using the horror genre, they're using it in quite uncreative and dull ways. And mm. to now look back at Romero's films and what was all possible within that space, I'm just amazed at what all he achieved. Speak- I mean, he caught, he casted, sorry, a black actor purely for his acting talent. Which yes, in the, the 60s, which was, was very, know, was very unconventional. Very controversial, to say the least. Yeah. But, you know, because he was, he was the, the, time. the right actor for, for the part. You know, the idea of somebody doing genuinely colorblind casting in 1968 is unthinkable. Absolutely. I mean, even still today, it's and unthinkable. It, yeah, so. and it's, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely. And this fellow, I mean, he, back then, and still to this day, zombie films are kind of the domain of B-grade, low-budget films. Back then, it was a taboo. You know, you don't make a big-budget film, but today, you have World War Z, you have mm. um, all the Danny Boyle zombie films. Speaking of which, uh, we're pretty big zombie fans here. And, yeah, we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about some of our favorite zombie films, whether it be action, comedy, romance, as it now happens. There's pretty broad genre range for zombie flicks nowadays. Yeah, my favorite zombie film is, uh, no surprise, uh, it's Shaun of the Dead with uh, Edgar Wright. (laughs) (laughs) It has, oh my God, I mean, it's actually... If I were to make a list of my favorite films ever, not just a zombie film, Shaun of the Dead would feature there. It's it's so much fun. And I think I see a lot of Romero within Edgar Wright in trying to push the boundaries of what is possible in terms of comedy, horror, using editing, quick flash styles, music to that sensibility. You know, that Queen song, Don't Stop Me Now in Shaun of the Dead, that sequence is, you know memorable it's one for all times if you haven't seen or you don't remember it go watch that clip again you know it's going to make you smile it is best use of music in film that we've seen in so many including baby driver i'm personally a fan of the 28 days later series where fast moving zombies became the flavor of the day it is still one of the most frightening films it is exceptional cast of killian murphy and christopher Eccleston. the sequel not quite as good but still fantastic robert carlisle and i would like and now we're also seeing zombie comedies uh we're seeing well, um, 
Warm Bodies, yes. Um, Zomcoms? Zomcoms, yes. Oh, There's the fantastic little series with Liv Moore, uh, where she's a technician who's a brain surgeon who it became a zombie. There's, yeah, I, I, I would like to explore yeah. this a little more. And there was like Fleabag, I think, a uh, series also, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and it's very political in the sense of how you know, zombies take over the political scene. So a lot of fun stuff is happening in this space. Yeah, um, I, I personally think zombie movies have almost hit the end of the road. You know, we're, they've become so overexposed over games, comics, action figures, you know, merchandise, TV shows, and movies now that um, the conventional zombie, as Romero defined it, has, is as amazing a creation as it is, is losing its ability to scare and shake people. So I think we need to take elements of it in different directions. So I'll raise an unconventional example here and say I really liked an art house film that came out about three or four years ago called Borgman, which is about a man who comes and over time turns the staff and family members living in this mansion and property over time into his followers and it uses body horror and it t tips its hat to the zombie genre but recontextualizes it and shifts it into new genre spaces i think that's the way forward for the zombie um the zombie film shifting the visual identity of zombies and taking what works from there using the social commentary that romero pioneered but moving it into new cinematic spaces so they trained to basan has been hailed as a revolutionary scott uh, um, a cargo it's a, it's a good film it's a good film but even in that film i was thinking you know it's it's very similar to um, Dawn of the Dead and uh, World War Z. You know, it's hard to escape the cliches in zombies now because we've seen so many of them. That's because we've become zombies as uh, movie viewers because we are just lazy <laughs> in trying to appreciate good cinema. <laughs> we just want everything to be spoon-fed. It, it's, it's that opening scene in Short of the Dead, harking back to that wonderful film you referred to earlier. But there are a few we have to be excited about. David Fincher doing the sequel to World War Z. Um, Congo, adapted from the Trotfest film, starring Martin Freeman here in Australia, which is an adapt a visual adaptation of a brilliant short story about zombies and zombies here. So I think there's a bit to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. That's true. You know, keep yourself alive and kicking. Yeah, so Briefly, we, what are we looking forward to? <laughs> so we, uh, well, we're looking forward to Melbourne Film Festival, which is coming out, uh, which will be very soon. Oh, yeah, soon. we're all going to be there? Well, we all look, we're looking forward to there. Valerian. I'm looking forward yeah. to seeing a ghost story. And we're talking War of the Planet of the Apes next week. We have to go. And Sonic, I'm looking forward to Atomic Blonde. Yes, Atomic Blonde. That looks fantastic. The Sonic Assassin is up next. Please stay tuned. This is Glenn Falkenstein. And have a wonderful week and enjoy movies. This is right, movies, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.